This is The Politics of Everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast, so while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. The idea of wealth exudes the idea of excessive amounts of money and the ability to have more than our fellow man or woman. However, what if wealth was redefined as a more broad goal, such as our overall state, to include our mental, spiritual, and physical wealth, as well as just our material wealth? On my podcast now is Chris Bates, a financial planner, a mortgage broker, who says his approach is very different. He was a financial advisor for over a decade and has had thousands of client conversations, and today he offers his clients meaningful financial advice that he hopes makes a real difference. Today, we dig deep as we chat about the politics of wealth. Welcome to the program, Chris. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay, let's let's dive in here. How would you define true wealth from your perspective and why? Okay, cool. I mean, I guess firstly, I don't really like the word wealth in society. I think it's um, very misrepresented and it's given a, the wrong rap, I guess, and it, it's defined very very finely as just literally financial wealth and so the wealth management industry your net worth I'm wealthy I've got lots of money it's all around just how much money you've got in life and wealth isn't really that if you actually look at what the definition of wealth it's actually something that you value and it's actually something that's valuable and I guess the true wealth to me is, is, is much more than money I think if you are the richest guy in the world if you're just rich and you haven't got good health or you haven't got good relationships or you're not doing something that you're passionate about, to me, I don't think you're really wealthy. You're just, you're wealthy on one side of all the dimensions out there. So, I mean, so so true wealth to me, really, it's much more broader. It's everything that you value in your life. That could be literally just having the ability to read or having time with your family or being able to, you know, go on holidays. You know, wealth is, it can be as as broad as you want. um, And I think the broader, the better. That sounds uh, redefining for a lot of us. And I guess for you, that the flip side is you have had a career in finance. Was that always what you thought you'd do? And have you kind of walked the path to where you are today? Give us a little bit of your career snapshot. It's probably not been a path, been more of a rocky bridge. I guess I was really probably naturally good at numbers when I was a kid and mathematics and all that sort of stuff was kind of my thing. And you know, naturally, you think when you're a kid that then you should become into finance and should become an accountant. I was an accountant for a year, kind of hated it, realized that it wasn't exciting, moved into kind of investment banking and then thought, oh, that's not really for me either. And then I met a financial advisor and that sent me down a different road and that kind of introduced people element. And I guess over that kind of, I've been an advisor for 11 years now, it's, it's been a little bit one hand fighting with the industry and what financial advice really is and out there and then secondly going look I just want to help people and learn about people and you know I'm curious about where they want to go in life and I guess I've kind of always been battling those two worlds the last four years I've been running my business and I kind of doing it my way in my show so I I kind of I've kind of let go of what everyone else is doing and just do it my way now. That sounds liberating. So I love this idea that the new wealth is well-being, and I, I think you know you would be wouldn't be alone in sort of valuing that that kind of definition. Yeah. 
And you sort of say money is not always the motivation. So how did you arrive at this definition yourself? Have you had an experience because of your career perhaps that has redefined wealth for you? Because I must admit, the idea of being wealthy has a pretty negative rap in most of our society when we see what's happening out there with those those people who do have lots of money and, and how perhaps um, that means others don't. Yeah, so you're right. I mean, there's lots of beliefs, financial beliefs that we've uh, kind of thrown in us as kids and they might have come from our parents and they've come from their parents and their parents and their parents. Rich people are evil, you know, money's bad, you know, et cetera. A lot of those things are in society. Um, wealthy really you know, really it's just someone who's got money. It doesn't mean that's good or bad. And I guess it's it's the connotations with what they do with that money really determines whether, you know, being wealthy is actually helpful or not. I guess the the view of people value meaning more than money, I guess it's it's when I grew up, you know, I guess the the generation that I'm in, you know, we probably look at things a little bit differently to say, you know, the baby boomer generation. And you know, money's so not not really something that motivates us. And there's a lot of research out here around intrinsic motivation and People actually go to work for more reasons than actually just a paycheck. And I think that's probably something that I'm just very kind of mindful of. And I mean, yeah, I mean, that kind of probably answers your question there more. Absolutely. So you mentioned um, in, in some of your copy, which I've, I've read as I've Google stalked you, <laughs> that there is that dark side of property investing. And I think it's sort of coming to the fore because in my mind, Australia is quite obsessed with property and we've, we've done a program all about the idea of rent vesting and why property is the thing that we're all obsessed with. Obviously, buyers and sellers are trying to achieve money and, and a financial status, which means they can maybe do whatever they want. Yeah. Why do you think property investing has become a little bit dark and murky? Okay, so it's always probably been dark and murky. There's, it's completely unregulated, firstly. So uh, every man and his dog can say absolutely anything to you and... Um, you know, if things don't turn out like you want them to, you can't really go back and say, you told me this. Um, so the other thing as well is that it's, it's hugely, hugely emotional um, and there's a huge status element attached to property investing and everyone wants to be a property investor. And unfortunately, not everyone is educated enough to know what's the difference between a good property and a bad property. And then there's actually so much money involved within the industry that naturally it, it attracts certain type of people who know they can make a lot of money fast and so then you get um, developers and people selling off the plan and all this where there's lots of commissions involved and you know there's this kind of belief that they have a story they've told themselves that they're doing the right thing but behind the scenes they know they're not and um, that's really the bad side of property investing. I think the obsession has has kind of grown and it's at probably the peak right now um, because property's done so well for so people that everyone's just kind of buying into this overconfidence of the property market and it keeps pushing things up. Now, that's not to say that it's a bad investment. It's just that all the work I do with these, with young clients, young families in their 30s, 40s, and a lot of it's around property, but it's not the traditional kind of, um, you know, let's just buy 10 properties all over Australia and hope for the best. Absolutely. There needs to be strategy behind that. And, and it's funny because I, I do think Maybe it's a legacy of the baby boober generation, you know, my generation and perhaps yours, educated in this idea that you can't really fail if you invest in bricks and mortar, whereas the share market's risky. But the reality is it's all risky, right? Like it's just buyer beware no matter what. Yeah, I think with, with shares, if, if you, you know, you buy a share of a company and you don't, you want to unwind that decision, it's pretty quick. You make a call, you literally log online and you sell the shares. Property. It's highly liquid, yeah, of course. Yeah. Property, you generally put all your money in, you 
leverage it, you know, 10 times, and then you potentially just let it sit there and you make a decision five, 10 years later whether that was a good decision. Um, and, you know, it, whether you actually made a good decision or not, you won't actually know till then. And then by then it's really too late. Um, and so that's really the problem with getting it wrong with property is there's a huge opportunity cost and there's all these other opportunity, opportunities that come by making the first decision right. Um, and unfortunately, you know, that's kind of the, the big downside when you, you know, you're unfortunately you're not making the right decision. Absolutely. Now, financial planning is obviously under the microscope at the moment, and it will be for most of 2018, highlighted by the Banking Royal Commission, which is in full flight. Mm-hmm. It's obviously showing advisors in, in big banks and, and some of the insurers knowingly have misled customers over sometimes a decade or more. So how do you think from your point of view as someone who's in the industry that financial planning will recover in terms of brand financial planning and, you know, your image, which is probably taking a bit of a battering at the moment? And how can we all know whether the people we're choosing with our money are equipped and ethical? So we've got to understand where the industry's come from and where the industry's going to go, firstly, as a, at, a, at a kind of high level to actually understand, well, actually wh- what's going to happen. Um, the industry started in the 80s and it was really a sales um, industry that got, uh, I guess, bur- came out of basically, you know, big manufacturers of products like AMP and AXA and things like that wanted to sell their products and so they, they, they came up with this thing called a financial advisor. Um, and then in the 90s, then basically share trading and superannuation came in and it turned from a selling insurance kind of based products to selling wealth management based products um, and funds under advice. Um, and then it's now kind of being kind of proven that that model isn't really giving the greatest of outcomes and going forward, it'll evolve into a completely different, you know, industry that's much more built around life planning and goals and strategies and coaching and things like that. So the way the industry is going to move is much further away from products and selling products um, into much more coaching. Um, the problem is you've got 20-odd thousand advisors in the country and 20-odd thousand advisors, very few actually want to move in this direction. They want to keep going back to what they've always done and that's selling investment products basically. So I'm all for the Royal Commission. You know, I've been blogging about this for many years and I've seen it, you know, worked in banks, I've worked in, you know, the AMPs of the world. I've seen it all and, um, you know, I'm glad all this stuff's actually hitting the papers because it needed to be talked about. Otherwise, you know, it's just this big, you know, heavy sack on the industry um, that has, you know, it's the elephant in the room, I guess. And I guess on the flip side, how can consumers or clients really educate ourselves to trust the financial planners that we we are engaging is there is there some sort of code of conduct which is likely to come out of this or some something that can really i guess let us know who's good and who's not yeah. because at the moment it just seems like it's a bit of a it's a bit of a lucky deal. yeah so it's, it's a it's a really difficult question the reason why is that it's it's not so much what people would you'd think so you know the, the, the associations out there would like you to think that it's the people that are most qualified who have got certain letters after their name um, you know, you'd think that the people who have been doing the job the longest is is a sure sign of success. And a lot of what's coming out today isn't young planners who are just on their first job. It's, it's a lot of older planners. Um, so, you know, it is very difficult. I think the first thing you need to do is is, is find out who the, who is. I'd, I'd probably work with a business owner and I know that I'm a business owner myself, but personally, I think that they've got their reputation on the line rather than a younger advisor working in a business. And that's, you know, it's a harsh reality of, of um, when you are younger and you're a planner. Um, I'd also look to work with an advisor that's not aligned to a, a banking or a 
you know, because generally speaking, you know, a lot of their advice is tailored around APL and that APL is generally tailored around selling the products that that institution owns them. Um, I'd also step away from advisors that promise you investment returns that are unrealistic and that they're going to know where the world's going. Personally, no one knows where the world's going. Um, every advisor who has given advice like that for the last 10 years would have got it wrong every year. Um, so you really want to focus on an advisor that's actually trying to give you coaching on actually financial basics and actually a system and a process for you to follow to actually move head financially and not so much targeted around investment returns. Now, there are advisors out there, you know, there are a lot of the younger advisors are moving this way because they understand that's their long-term future. Um, so, I mean, that's probably a good starting point. So not, not conflicted, not based around investment and more based around coaching. That That's great tips. And I guess the reality is we have to pay for that advice. If we want it to, to not be you know, just free and products being pushed at us that we maybe don't need or can't afford or aren't going to work for us. We actually need to value the advice. And and I guess that's the, the sort of elephant in the room when it comes to this discussion that a lot of people are used to, you know, it's tied up in the commissions and that's how we get the advice. But if we really want the impartial advice, it sounds like we need to to be able to own that and pay for it like we would any other yeah, service. Yeah, 100% agree. I mean, that's a harsh, um, people don't value things, especially, uh, and they love think when things are free or they feel like free. And that's one of the benefits of commission, I guess, is people feel like they're not paying for a service, um, but they are in other ways. Um, they just don't know that. I think definitely paying, you know, money in your pocket, even if you just commit to it with a good advisor for a year or two and just actually get your knowledge up and, and start taking steps forward. The only way you're actually going to move yourself forward financially is when you start to prioritise finance, finances in your life and you actually put a focus on it. Um, if it keeps pushing down, you know, you know, want, you know, down your priority list and keeps getting fallen off your to-do list, then you're never going to value and never going to step forward. So the good, good advisors out there will actually drag that priority out there and create meaning around why money matters to you. And then once you know that, then you've actually got all the motivation there. You know, if you don't need money, then hard to be motivated but if you've actually got meaningful goals that you really want to achieve like put your kids through education or move overseas or move out of Sydney or whatever it is then you're going to get the motivation there and now you just need a system and a process to do it. So your business Wealthful partly began because you had this frustration with the type of advice or the way advice was being delivered and also the flip side is your own passion to build the ethical advice um, firm of the future which I think is fantastic. How does that really stack up? I mean, obviously people come to you for the financial outcome in many ways. What else, what other sort of things in your toolkit do you offer them that perhaps other advisors don't? So, I mean, I just jumped off a call with a new client then. My questions aren't around, you know, do you want to make more money or, you know, when do you want to retire and how much money do you need? I think a lot of those questions are pretty pointless. I think really what questions you should be asking, questions that matter is, is you know, where do you want to live long term? You know, what do you do? You really love what you do. You know, what do you want to do with your kids? You know, do you want to? Uh, what's happening with your parents? Like, these are the things that really matter. These are the things that you should be planning for, and these are the things that you're going to have to think. Well, financially, we're going to need money for that. So let's let's start to find let figure out how we can you know grow our money so we can pay for these things. So what I do is I, I, t- I shift the focus from just having money or making money for the sake of making money and, and trying to grow more money to actually figuring out, well, what do we actually need? What actually matters? And a lot of that comes down to helping people, you know, really question whether they're doing the right job. Um, You know, I'm pretty black and white with that. You know, if you're not passionate about it and you don't enjoy it, then I do think that's a huge part of your life you're missing out on. So I think 
Um, you know, a lot of it comes down to questioning people around their health and, you know, are they actually, is it really worth it that you're working 70 hours a week and you're not seeing your family or whatever it is? And um, I think, it, you know, the conversations go in different directions and I guess that, that creates a, a much more meaningful outcome, um, you know, and, and so it's sometimes it's, you know, we're stepping away from making more money to actually getting a better life uh, and, and that's quite common. And it does sound great, but the reality is, I guess, um, we off, on the flip side, that we read all these reports about how much money we need to retire even comfortably, not even, you know, excessively, not talking buying super yachts and so forth, you know, particularly if you're going to stay in big cities like Sydney and Melbourne where it is expensive to live no matter how old you are or what stage of life you're at. Are you saying that perhaps it's not really all about that and we can be comfortable and satisfied with less because I've heard sort of the whole you need a million dollars in super, you need to own your own house, you need this, and that's just going to get you that basic kind of middle-class retirement. And so, you know, the other other issue I guess we're grappling with is a lot of women um, retiring with less super and less wealth, they're getting divorced or their husbands um, are passing away sooner and that's the highest rate of homelessness growing in Australia is women in their 50s and 60s, which is completely shocking. So how do you balance out that sort of cold hard reality with those those lofty goals really? I mean, is it a conversation you have to have with clients every year? How often do you check in with them? How do they, you know, things move is what I'm saying and how do you make sure that they're still on track to where yeah, they so need to be? You know, Yes, we're going to, everyone at some point are going to stop working and we're going to live hopefully for a period. Who knows how long that's going to be? Um, it could be five years, it could be 10 years, it could be 40 years. You know, I think the oldest man in the world died this week at 119. So you actually have no idea how long you're going to live. And so how much money you need for retirement, you actually have no idea. Um, how much money, you know, how much money do you need? Obviously, the more the better, but, you know, striving and for this round number of a million dollars is what wealth management and the papers want you to think um, so they can sell you more money, put you more money into super funds so you, they can make more money on fees. Really what the number is actually comes down to you, how you live your life and really the focus should shift about, well, I need money because in retirement I want to do X, Y and Z. And unless you have really any idea of what you really value in life and where you want to spend your time, it's hard to put a number on it. Now, for example, I went to the beach on Sunday. I sat there and read a book for two hours. And we just sat on a rock and went for a swim. Like that didn't cost any money. You know, if I want to do things like that in retirement, I don't need much money, do I? So I think we need to shift away from believing that the more and, you know, we need lots more to actually go and well, actually the way that I live life and what I want to do in life actually doesn't cost a lot of money. And we start to work it way back. So there is a there are problems. Unfortunately, I'm a massive uh, believer in, you know, the in the flaws of capitalism and, um, you know, and there are people. That sounds so ironic, um, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's well, I mean, that's the, that's the truth really, isn't it? So, I mean, the, you know, capitalism isn't working for the majority of the population. I'm trying to help people who are, I guess, getting marginalised by that to actually find a way through the system. The system, unfortunately, won't change. The, the world's built on capitalism and, you know, rather than, I guess, getting being left behind and getting, I guess, affected by that, you're trying to, I guess, make the best of what you can. And so you're doing things like, you know, doing job that you're passionate about and that's meaningful and pursuing things in your life that, you know, you find meaning from. Um, expecting that, you know, that capitalism is going to go away, um, unfortunately, you know, you haven't really got that time. <laughs> no, I totally agree. Part of your business is what you call the wealthful way. And I know there's an emphasis on building that actionable and simple system for predominantly younger Australians. You were saying a lot of your clients are in your yeah. 30s and, and 40s. 
So for them, what does that look like? And it sounds like your wealth planning processes are a little bit different without giving away all your trade secrets, of course. What, what's sort of different about your process? Is it, is it more than just filling in a whole bunch of forms and going to get a health check? What, what do you do that's, so that's a bit different? Clients will probably say to me, is that it a lot of the time? And the reason why is that, you know, what we actually do is we, we build something that's extremely simple and we have one focus every year. You know, that literally might be we're going to try to save $30,000 this year. We're going to buy our first investment property. You know, we, we, we nut it down because really, you know, good advice should, is actually only a few different levers. Um, it's not about, you know, putting money all over the place and betting on this next latest Bitcoin or, you know, you know whatever. It's actually just following a very simple system and a process and actually then just sticking to it. And the discipline of doing that actually and compounding over a long time is actually what gets you a really good result. So... My process is actually cutting cutting through all that noise of all these different options and then I guess giving people very clear actions on what they need to be doing right now and then we actually and that's obviously always changing you know it could be they're helping them actually get their first home and actually understanding what's actually a good property then we're actually saying right now we actually need to pay off some of this debt so let's just focus on that this year okay maybe we want to do a renovation you know it's 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 kind of talking people through all these big decisions and actually giving them one real focus to get through it. Excellent. That sounds very helpful. So who have you had in your life that's really inspired you either as a mentor, um, they don't have to be well-known, they could be in your immediate circle or your family. If so, who are they and what have they taught you about life So I don't listen to a lot of the traditional kind of financial advice kind of gurus. Um, there's a few that are very quiet behind the scenes and they've started very successful organisations and they look at things very differently um so Ron Abbey's one which he started IPAC um you know if no if you wanted to, you know, the book he's written how much is enough I mean fundamentally that encapsulates everything that I'm kind of talking about here um and uh you know I mean more broadly I, I quite like to kind of take tips and from everyone I think everyone's got good points everyone's got bad points and you know I guess it's it's you can seek motivation from you know many different sources so I'm a bit of a more of a, a grab of a bit from everywhere but I mean Arun Abbey is very it's pretty he's a, he's a pretty intelligent guy and he looks at things um you know pretty broadly and pretty uh you know smartly in my eyes it's always good to be challenged as well I guess on how how we think I think there's a risk that sometimes it's that echo chamber we only sort of listen and absorb information that we already know or we agree with so I'm always into that challenge as well so yeah that's that's a great tip so last advice what would be your number one tip for listeners today who want to get want to get ahead in the politics of wealth? redefine wealth to yourself um, and really kind of second guess what you're actually doing and where you're going um, and figure out whether you're pursuing the, life, the goals of your parents and goals of your friends and goals of society or you're actually doing something that's meaningful for you I think that's a question you should always be asking yourself. And if you can, you know, hand on heart, know that you are, then that's you're probably heading in the right direction. But if you're not, um, you need to figure out what's not working and, and I guess actually start to redefine everything. And, uh, heads, and as soon as you do that, that's when you can start moving in the right direction. That's been fabulous food for thought. If you do want to connect further with Chris Bates, there will be some details on our show notes. You've been listening to The Politics of Everything. Until next time, keep well. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. 
I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespoke comms. That's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U. And we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.